Thank you, Jemima. And how good does the band sound? It's sounding really, really good over here on the live stream. So thank you to our musos for your hard work in all of that. And uh, for Jacob for making all the tech work. And I trust that it's a, a blessing to you and uh, that uh, you get pleasure out of uh, hearing God speak to us. And I'm going to ask that he might indeed speak to us by his word tonight. Loving Father, we pray now that as we turn to your word that you would speak to us, that uh, by your Holy Spirit you would give us an insight into how you work in this world and how you want us to work and that you'd help us understand our big problem and see the big solution. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, despite remarkable advancements in medicine... Uh, we keep hearing doctors talk about managing the symptoms. Uh, we've extended our life expectancy. We've cured many diseases and illnesses. But we still need to manage symptoms. We can't fix them. We have to put up with them. And that is true to an extent with the, the biggest problem of all, our heart. Now, I'm not talking about the, the physical, fleshy muscle that pumps blood around our body. I'm talking about our spiritual core, the, the heart of who we are. Jesus spoke about the heart many times. Here are some that we've already seen in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 5:28. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Chapter 6, verse 21. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Matthew 9, 4. Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, Why do you have such evil thoughts in your hearts? Chapter 12, verse 34. Jesus says, You brood of snakes, how could evil men like you speak what is good and right? For whatever is in your heart determines what you say. And then chapter 13, verse 15, it speaks of how the hearts of these people are hardened and their ears cannot hear and they close their eyes so their eyes cannot see and their ears cannot hear and their hearts cannot understand and they cannot turn to me and let them heal them. And then finally, chapter 15, verse 8, it says, These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Do you get the picture? When Jesus talks about our heart, he's talking about the very core of who we are. He's talking about our spiritual centre, the, the very centre of what makes us tick. And the issue is that we've got a big problem with our heart. Look back at chapter 15 at what the heart does. Verse 18. But the words you speak come from the heart. That's what defiles you. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying and slander. Our heart problem leads to all sorts of other problems, all sorts of other symptoms, like evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, lying, slander. These are big problems and they all stem from having a bad heart. Well, today, as we restart our 28-week series on the Gospel of Matthew, we begin with a discussion about divorce. 
And then we end up looking at a failed attempt by a wealthy man to follow Jesus. But the thread in all of this is that these problems are symptoms. Symptoms of a deeper heart problem. Now many of you today are already followers of Jesus. You've recognised that you can't save yourself and so you've cried out to help from Jesus to give you forgiveness and true hope for eternity. But some of you haven't yet made that step to follow Jesus. And today I want you to learn more about how to follow Jesus and why it matters. And as we look at what Jesus said to various people in this chapter of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, we'll all get a chance to see more of who Jesus really is and how to follow him. I'm even praying that tonight, today, some of you might decide to follow Jesus for the first time or to come back. And I'm praying that because that is the only lasting solution to our deep heart problem. Well, chapter 19 starts with a bit of a geographical note. Verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went down to the region of Judea, east of the Jordan River. Large crowds followed him there, and he healed their sick. Well, the, these things that Jesus was talking about were all the things about forgiveness that we saw last time when we were in Matthew's Gospel at the start of December. And now he makes an important trip from Galilee up north in the sort of non-Jewish area. He goes all the way down south to Judea, east of the Jordan River. He, he's been having a constant biff with the Jewish leaders but it's kind of been safe when he's 200 kilometres away. But now he goes into the heart of it. He travels to the heart of Jewish land, into Judea, towards Jerusalem. And the way it's described reminds us of John the Baptist. John the Baptist had been baptising people at the Jordan River. And it was a baptism for the repentance of sins. John also did something else. He spoke out about sexual immorality and the sexual immorality of one particular person, the king. And we know what happened to John the Baptist. He was beheaded because of it. Jesus now goes to pretty much the same spot. And it turns out he's going to be talking about pretty much the same topic. Have a look at verse 3. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? The Pharisees, these Jewish rulers and teachers, try to trap Jesus. The Jewish rulers try to trap Jesus. They're not asking him for some advice. They're not asking him for spiritual guidance. They want to trap him. And so they ask him, should a man be able to divorce his wife for just any reason? But before Jesus answers the question, I want to look at this a little bit closer. They are asking whether or not a divorce can happen for just any reason. They're asking if it's okay to split up a marriage for something little, like snoring or burning the dinner or buying another fishing rod. Can we churn marriages like we change mechanics or hairdressers or mobile phone providers? It's a sad question, isn't it? 
Do these rulers really think that marriage is that disposable, that insignificant, that unimportant? If they do, they're clearly living in a world that is totally different to ours. I'd say that nearly everyone in this room has been affected by divorce in one way or another. My parents divorced when I was a teenager, and I still bear the scars. Maybe you are divorced. Maybe your parents divorced. Maybe one of your children or friends or family members has divorced. And if so, you'll know some of the pain of divorce as well. Divorce is not to be taken lightly. Which is why this question by the religious rulers is so tasteless. But before he goes to the heart of the issue, Jesus turns these religious rulers to the Bible. And he says to them, verse 4, Haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus replied? They record that from the beginning God made them male and female. These Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. And so he brings them right back to the start of the Bible where God says that he made males and females different to each other. And because we're different, it creates a special opportunity to be in a complementary relationship. Verse 5, and he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. See, God made males and females different so that we could create partnerships that celebrated the differences and complemented each other. And that's why marriage exists. Marriage exists to enjoy our differences. But it's not just a casual thing. It's a lifelong bond between one man and one woman. Verse 6, Jesus says, Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. It's like the two people become one new person and they're glued together like superglue and nobody should split them up. And that's what the Bible says in the second chapter of the first book, right at the start. But what about the fact that a bit later on it seems to allow divorce? Well, that's the trick that the Pharisees are playing on Jesus or trying to. Verse 7. Then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away, they asked. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, it seems to say that marriages can be easily broken, which seems to contradict what Jesus said about not breaking what God joined. And if Jesus had contradicted what had been said in the Bible, then he's landed right in their trap. But they are the ones who score an own goal. Verse 8, Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. Firstly, Jesus says that Moses allowed divorces because of a bigger problem. And that is the problem we spoke of earlier, the heart problem. Moses allowed divorce because of our heart problem. Remember chapter 15, verse 19? From the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, lying and slander. And most of these things 
can bring down a marriage. And when adultery and sexual immorality happen, the heart of the marriage is smashed. The one flesh, one body is ripped apart. And in the end, Moses gave God's people divorce to just kind of bury the dead corpse, to put it crudely. The marriage was broken by unfaithfulness and the divorce was just the death sentence. But Jesus was not going to let them treat marriage lightly. And what's more, Jesus then said that divorce can lead to sin. Verse 9. And I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. You see, if divorce is just the death certificate for a dead marriage killed by unfaithfulness, then divorce exists as merely a concession. But if divorce happens only so that a person might just marry someone else, then that remarriage is itself an act of adultery. And the only exception Jesus gives is when the marriage is already broken by adultery. And, of course, the death of a spouse. If a spouse commits adultery, then the marriage is already broken. And then divorce may become an option. It doesn't mean the marriage can't be restored. And it, you go to the kind of forgiveness that Jesus spoke of in the chapter before, you'll see what's needed. But remarriage after the unfaithfulness of the other spouse is not adultery. There's so much more to talk about here and I'm happy to address issues in question time. So if you've got other questions, ask away and I'll get to them in the future weeks. But the key is this. Marriage is certainly not to be entered into lightly. And divorce is only for extreme circumstances. But hear this. If you are experiencing domestic abuse in your marriage then it is right for you to separate from your spouse for your safety and to get things fixed. All these things stem from a hard heart, don't they? They all stem from a big problem we face. And because of our heart problems, it makes marriage even more challenging, doesn't it? Verse 10, Jesus' disciples then said to him, If this is the case... It's better not to marry. The disciples realised just how serious marriage really is and why it mustn't be entered into lightly. And then Jesus acknowledges that not all people will get married. Verses 11 and 12, he says, Not everyone can accept this statement, Jesus said. Only those whom God helps. Some are born as eunuchs, some have been made eunuchs by others, and some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. In other words, some people will remain single and unmarried for various reasons. Because singleness is a good thing. Indeed, in 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul says that singleness is a good thing, even in, especially in the light of the fact that we should be telling people how to follow Jesus and why it matters. There's an urgency. And right as Jesus speaks about this urgency of people entering the kingdom of heaven, we have a change in scene. Verse 13. One day some parents brought their children to Jesus 
so that he could lay his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. <laughs> it's an extraordinary verse, isn't it? The first is just first half is just so normal and nice. The parents bringing their kids to be prayed for by Jesus. Ah, it's lovely. But the second half is so nasty and weird. Jesus' disciples scold the parents for bothering Jesus. Naughty parents! How dare you waste Jesus' time by bringing these worthless kids along? It's so weird, it's almost comical. Certainly kids' ministry didn't rate highly with the disciples. I don't think they'd be lining up to teach scripture in schools. Well, not at least at this stage. And the reason that the disciples reacted so weirdly is that they were following the way of the world. You see, back then, children were completely worthless. No value, no status, and no importance. Children were worthless back then. Thankfully, we've turned that around now. Uh, sometimes, maybe even too much, perhaps, when we end up living our lives for the sake of our kids. But maybe the reason that our Western world has such a high regard for children is because of these famous words that Jesus has said. And the words that follow, verse 14. Let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these children. Jesus didn't reject the kids. He invited the kids to come to him. And he made it clear that the disciples had to stop rejecting the kids from following him. And the reason is that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these children. Jesus sees these kids as role models for grown-ups. Kids are faith role models. Can you see that? He wants the grown-ups to grow down, not up. At least when it comes to how we follow Jesus. How we follow him and show our faith in him. But what is it about them? What is it about grown-ups like me that Jesus... Oh, sorry, what is it about, about kids that Jesus likes? Getting it the right way around. What is it about them that Jesus likes? Well, one way to answer this question is to try and think what a child is like. Kids don't overcomplicate things, do they? Kids know how to trust, right? And kids know who to trust. If a grown-up just grabs your hand and starts walking across the road, then if you trust them, you walk with them. You don't overcomplicate things. You just start walking. And I think that's what Jesus is saying when he wants us to be like the children. And that's why, verse 15, he placed his hands on their heads and blessed them before he left. He showed everyone that these unimportant, unintelligent, unworthy humans were actually the ones to model ourselves on. But there's more to having a childlike faith than just these three verses. Because the next episode is a complete contrast to the story of the kids. Verse 16. Someone came to Jesus with his question. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? This person wants eternal life, which is a really good thing to want. This man wants eternal life. And so he's come to the right place. He's come to Jesus. And he thinks the way to get eternal life is to do a good deed. 
He's just got to work out which good deed to do, and then he's sorted. Now, I reckon this guy thinks like most people do about eternal life. If you're good enough, God will give you a good afterlife. But Jesus responds by asking another question. Verse 17a, Why ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. See, Jesus focuses in on that word, good. And Jesus says to the guy that if you want to talk about good, being good, doing good, good works, you've got to know there's only one good person in the world. And mate, that ain't you. And if that guy wants to play the good deed game, then here's the deal. Verse 17b. But to answer your question, if you want to receive eternal life, Jesus says, keep the commandments. Now, for this guy, that seems positive. He's got an answer. He's got something to work towards. But he needs some more info. Verse 18a. Which ones? The man asked. Now, he probably knew that there were ten commandments, and he was keen to maybe narrow things down a little bit. But verse 18b, Jesus replied, You must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, honour your father and mother, love your neighbour as yourself. Uh, Jesus lists the second half of the Ten Commandments, the ones all about doing good to other people. And the guy listens to the list and he says, verse 20, Hey, I've obeyed all these commandments, the young man replied. What else must I do? He thinks, I have kept all the commandments. I've ticked all those boxes. Never killed anyone? Tick. Never had sex outside my marriage? Tick. Never stolen anything? Tick. Never lied? Tick. Always honoured parents? Tick. Always loved others? Tick. He reckons he's ticked all the boxes. I wonder how many other people think like this guy. You know, when I die, I'll stand before God. And when he says, why should I let you into my heaven? I'll just tell him that I've mainly done good things most of the time. And so that means really I'm good enough. That's certainly what this guy thought. But what did Jesus think? Verse 21. Jesus told him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Firstly, Jesus talks about being perfect. If this guy wants to make his own way into heaven by doing good works, then Jesus says that near enough isn't good enough. Getting 50% isn't good enough in this test. In fact, perfection is all that counts. 100% full marks. Perfection is needed if you're striving for good works. Do you reckon you'd get 100% in the good works exam? If you do, then maybe you should ask some of the people in your family what they think. But even if this guy actually did lots of really good things, then Jesus surprises him by telling the man to get rid of all his possessions, to liquidate the lot. Everything he owns he must sell, and everything that matters he should give away. It's a big ask, isn't it? Everything gone, right? Would you do it? 
Would you walk away from every possession you have so that you can have treasure in heaven? Would you throw away all you have so you could have eternal life? Well, how does our try-hard do-gooder do? Verse 22. But when the young man heard this, he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Fail. He couldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. He had many possessions. And if he had to make a choice, owning and keeping the stuff was what mattered most. What he owned was more important than following Jesus. And I find this really, really sad. This guy was this close to following Jesus. He had Jesus right in front of him there. And yet he couldn't do it. This man loved his stuff more than Jesus. And his choice to ignore Jesus and keep his stuff made him sad. Sad. I mean, absolutely. It's devastating, really. And then verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth. It is very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said it's really hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I got to say, that's a big problem for people who live in Australia. Compared to most people in the world, we are very rich. We have clean running water you can drink. We have Centrelink payments. We have free health care, just to say the very least. So we're in trouble if we love our stuff. And if we're not careful, we risk missing out on eternal life. And to drive home the point, Jesus says, verse 24, I'll say it again, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's a famous saying of Jesus. And it simply shows how ridiculously difficult it is for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. And it shocks the disciples. Verse 25. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. They get it, right? They know that doing good is a path to failure. They know that impressing God with good works will fail. And they know that they will fail too. And then this happened. Verse 26. Jesus looked at them intently. And he said, Humanly speaking, it is impossible. But with God, everything is possible. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> if you try and do it yourself, you'll fail. But God is able to, to get an even a, a rich person into his kingdom. We can't do it, but God can. We can't save ourselves, but God can. Because it's not about good deeds. It's about trusting God. And this kind of brings us back to the bit about divorce and hard hearts. If you've done things in your life that you know God doesn't like, then there's hope. 
if you've been through a divorce or you've done any of the other things that hard hearts do, then there's hope. To quote the list, you might have done evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, lying, slander. And you might think that it means you've got no hope of being accepted by Jesus. But Jesus makes it clear. Verse 26 again. He looks at them. He says, humanly speaking, it is impossible. But with God, everything is possible. It is possible to be forgiven by Jesus. It is possible to be his friend. And that's because it's not about what we do. It's not about how we perform. It's all about who we trust. We can be forgiven because it's not about performance. And that's where it comes back to the bit about the children. We need to follow Jesus like a child. Children don't depend on their possessions. Children don't stress about their performance. They just have a simple and powerful trust in their parents. And that's the kind of a simple and powerful trust that all people should have in Jesus. That's why I love to baptise babies. When a baby clings to their parent who follows Jesus, they show what faith is like. It's not about performance. It's about trust. Well, the chapter's almost finished, and it's Peter who speaks up. Verse 27. Peter said to him, We've given up everything to follow you. What will we get? <laughs> Thanks, Peter. Is it worth it? He says. Well, verse 28. Jesus replied, I assure you that when the world is made new and the Son of Man sits upon his glorious throne, you who have been my followers will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. In other words, yes, of course it is worth it. It's worth giving up everything to follow Jesus. Nothing is more valuable than the reward for following Jesus. Jesus tells these special apostles that they're going to have a special leadership role in the kingdom. But he makes it clear to everyone that we who have given up our life to follow Jesus will receive great return and best of all, eternal life. But how does the rich man fit into this? How do the children fit into this? Well, the last verse says, but many who are the greatest now will be least important then and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then the time is coming when our heart problems will be healed no more evil thoughts murder adultery sexual immorality theft lying and slander and the way we'll receive it is from the mercy of jesus by the faith of a child